Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Take a dose of every day. How am I supposed to stay in a world built on empty ways? And the lessons are all the Thanks for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 2, Episode 37. This is Part 2 of an upstream journey. If you remember a couple years ago, we spoke with Paul about his trip from Florida Keys to Alaska. If you don't remember that, I'd suggest pausing now, especially if you're a new listener to the podcast. Go back. You can find Paul on Instagram. You can go to the website in Upstream Journey, and then if you feel you know enough about what we spoke about about two years ago, you can go ahead and listen now. So sit back, grab yourself a Jameson, grab yourself a Chipotle burrito, and let's check in with Paul, see how he's doing out on the West Coast. So where uh, where are we checking in with you today? Uh, I'm in Sonoma, California at the moment. Okay. So, uh, you were in Dublin last time we spoke. Oh, nice. So let's catch up. So, uh, how many years ago was it? You got in your car and drove to Florida. That was two and a half years ago. It was uh, February of 2013, which is hard. So that was the, the, the upstream journey. Uh Uh-huh. And if people haven't listened, you basically went from Florida and ended up in Alaska and it's a pretty life-changing experience, it sounded like. Yeah, definitely. It was 28,220 miles in six months and fishing in tons of different states from everything from tarpon to salmon in Alaska. So it was a really neat experience and uh, really cool to get out there. I mean, the main focus, as you know, was, was the conservation angle of it, which was fishing in areas that have sort of endangered waters or endangered fish and telling those stories and trying to express the value of those resources through my fishing experiences there. So, Right. And it was, it was covered Orvis. You were logging there and we did the podcast so people all heard it. And, and then you went to school in Dublin mm-hmm. Dublin, and no discernible accent after, was it two years you were there? Oh. Oh, just a year and maybe. My accent got way better than it was when I talked to you the first time because that was right when I arrived there, I think in September, eh? My goodness. Yeah. All right. So from Dublin, you graduated. You get a little hat with a little tassel on it over there. You know, the funny thing is that school in Ireland is really weird. I don't know if I expressed this to you the last time we talked. 
it's 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 a weird system and i don't know if it was just my university but like the highest grade you could get was a 77 i don't quite understand how they came to that number but that was it like one of the first papers i got i got like a 62 on or something and i was like shit failed and i showed it to like one of my classmates and he was like no dude that's really good you got like a b plus <laughs> i was like <laughs> okay but anyway so i didn't actually graduate i finished i left ireland june 13th of 2014 uh i finished in my thesis in september but i didn't graduate of september of last year 2014 but i didn't graduate until june of this year june 17th so I didn't go back. I didn't get a tassel or anything. Apparently, they sent my parents a diploma to my house in Memphis. And that's that's about all she wrote. It was a fairly anticlimactic end yes. to an otherwise good year. All right. So so do you have like a home base now if your diploma is getting sent to Memphis? Yeah. So I'm actually living up in Seattle. I've been up there since uh, February. Nice. You hitting the pink salmon right now? No. When you're not in Sonoma? <laughs> <laughs> no, I need to get out. I it's terrible. I'm after despite the fact that I'm like really good at quitting my job and taking 6 months to go fishing. These days I'm really bad about forcing myself to get away from my desk and go out and fish. Uh so I have I've fished four times in the in Washington in the 6 months that I've lived there. And I work part-time at to help out my buddy in his fly shop. So uh, it's even more embarrassing when I'm in there and people are like, Hey, how are things going out? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, no, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't well, been out there. Let's ever. do that. Uh, what shopper yet? Let's give them a shout out. Uh, I'm, I'm helping out my buddy, uh, Dave McCoy. Um, he runs, owns and runs Emerald water anglers, which is, uh, at least in my opinion, uh, the, one of the premier swing for steelhead and sea run cutthroat. Uh, shops anywhere in the Pacific Northwest and he's based in Seattle and I live two blocks from the shop and so when they're real busy I just end up heading in there and helping out a little bit so nice. so uh, he got he was Orvis Endorsed Guide of the Year like three years ago McCoy I think so right no uh, I would be really surprised because he is not an Orvis person he's a Patagonia ambassador um oh, okay. and has been for a while and he's on the costa ambassador and a bunch of other companies but good uh he does a good social media campaign yeah yeah that's that's his jam for sure yeah all right so you must be working in uh conservation now yeah you're so you're not in the shop no so um yeah my the stuff that i was working on with chewitna sort of turned into a full-time job um so I now run a consulting firm um, called Last Frontier Strategies that works at the intersection of uh, sort of fly fishing, government relations, and marketing and outreach. And so working with conservation campaigns and organizations to do everything from lobbying in Congress to making films up in Alaska. So that's, that's the primary work. And then I got a bunch of other side media projects and stuff that I work on as well. And so when we talked last, you know, you, you, the pebble man mine was like the big issue. And you're like, yeah, but there's other things that are older than the pebble mine that just gets the attention. And that was the chew, chew, chew I can't even say chew it. Now. How would one spell that? C H U I T N A. Okay. And, and so you want to fill us in on, on how that's been going and, uh, kind of update us on, on that river and, and yeah. why it's a whole, the whole, if you want to give the whole, you know, elevator speech. Yeah. I'll sit back and listen. Yeah, so the, the quick background is that uh, the Chuitna is a river. It's about 40 miles west of Anchorage on the opposite side of Cook Inlet. So even though it's really close to Anchorage, um, it's really isolated. It's There's a little tiny town there called Beluga, Alaska that has 21 full-time residents. Um, and basically, it's just this absolutely incredible salmon wilderness. It's one of the last places left in the world that has solid runs of all five species of wild Pacific salmon. Um, there's a really amazing native community there called Tionic, um, which is just on the south side of the river. And, um, you know, they're, they're uh, native uh, Alaskans that have been there for, you know, thousands of years. And um, that entire watershed, unfortunately, is at risk because there's a proposal to build uh, one of the largest surface coal mines uh, anywhere in the country, right through the headwaters of the river. Um, so we're talking about literally digging 300 feet deep, 
through 13.7 miles of river um, and removing all this really low-grade coal and building this huge export terminal right at the, head, uh, right at the uh, mouth of the river uh, where it flows for, into Cook Inlet. And selling for low-grade coal, so yeah. they're getting like, like the cheap stuff. Yeah, They're going to destroy it all for like cheap product. Yeah, it's really it's pretty much some of the lowest grade coal that you you can find, um, and it's all being exported overseas to Asian markets because there's not even a market for it in the United States. Lovely. And speaking of mining, so today there was the the big spill in the Animas River in Colorado, which it yeah. looks like I mean, it looks like orange soda right now. Yeah, the aerial photos. Um, so we all need metals and stuff, but yeah, it's just. They, they, they got to figure out just ways of not destroying everything when they do it. Yeah, you know, it's a tricky issue. And with something like Chew It Now, it's a little bit more cut and dry, which is the nice thing is because I think there's a pretty solid argument to make that the world doesn't need more low-grade coal, especially low-grade coal that's going to be sent over to, you know, less regulated Asian markets and is going to blow a lot of the negative uh, toxins and pollutants back over <laughs> across the ocean right yeah. back to us. Um, Plus the little, amount of fuel it takes to come here to pick it up and then to go drop it off. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, it's um, from a climate standpoint, it's, it's a pretty scary project. So it's the Chuitna is part of a much larger coal field called the Susitna Beluga Coal Field. And um, the Chuitna is, is what we've sort of dubbed a pioneering project, a lot like Pebble Mine and that it's the first one in an area. And if they can get that one permanent and get the infrastructure in place to develop that, then it'll be a lot easier to develop all a multitude of other mines around it. And so when you look at the entire Susitna Blue coal field, um, you're talking about 33 billion tons of coal, um, which is essentially 30 years of coal use at current U.S. consumptions. And so even though it's going overseas, I mean, that's the quantity of stuff we're talking about. And the, and the likelihood that all of that is going to get um, you know, dug up is pretty small if not zero but i mean even to tap into a resource of that magnitude and to start pulling that out i mean there's enough co2 in there that's more than two times the amount of global co2 emitted so it's it's pretty scary stuff but but back to the animus i mean it's it's a little bit you know it's it's the fine line with that type of mining i mean even with pebble mine as much as i oppose that project i mean we need we need copper we need gold it's what runs cell phones and the technologies and clean technologies and everything that we're using right now to have this conversation but we got to figure out as you said a way to do it so that we're not destroying our, our rivers and our um you know our wilderness to, to accomplish that yeah the price of the copper john fly is gonna have to go up <laughs> yeah so and when you were doing your road trip i wanted to bring this up from today you eat a lot of chipotle did yeah. you ever fish while eating a burrito because today i was eating a falafel in georgetown and was just like playing around with the fly in the water, seeing how it would swim. And a carp came up and sucked it in, and I blew it because I had a falafel in one hand dripping tahini everywhere, and um, it was bad. Everyone got a good laugh out of it down there. No, I did. The closest I got was I posted. I did a, a grip and grin with a chipotle burrito, and then did a, a similar grip and grin with the fish just barely out of the water in the same pose on. Uh, with the brown later that day and uh, it did post the burritos and browns make an excellent day or something like that. But aside from that, I have not actually done it while fishing. That will have to be my new Chipotle challenge. They're yeah, uh, the I, building that I live in in Seattle. They're building a Chipotle in it. It's going to be really, really dangerous. It's literally <laughs> hundred feet above my head. So, Oh my goodness. And, and you didn't get one like battered and fried in Dublin because they fry everything there. Right. Yeah. No, I actually, it's kind of a funny story. There's a, I wrote a story about it to some degree for, um, revive magazine. There's a, there's a place in Dublin called Tolteca that looks exactly like a Chipotle. I mean, everything is the exact same. The menu is the exact same. The type, the color scheme, I mean, even their logo is similar, like shape and design. I mean, if you didn't, if you took out Tolteca and like just dropped me in there. I think, yeah, I'm in a Chipotle. Like it's exactly the same white marble. I mean, white tile, I mean, red, all of that stuff. Uh, and it's exactly like it, except for the one problem is their burritos are terrible. Uh, it's the it's only like going to McDowell's. Uh, it's a, it's a total sheep and wolf's clothing. So 
Uh, wolf in sheep's clothing, I mean. Uh, it's just as brutal. So I went there like once and really didn't like it. And I figured I would give it a second shot. And it was not, it was really bad. So they don't have Chipotle in Dublin. They have one in London and they have one in Paris. As far as I'm aware, those are, at least as of last year, they're only two European locations. Any uh, any Chipotle down while you're in Sonoma? Soak up some of the, the vino? Uh, I actually don't drink wine. <laughs> Just come okay. down here and drink whiskey and beer. I I hadn't had Chipotle actually in, in the probably the longest stretch I had ha- not had it while living in the United States. It had been like four or five months, and I uh, I stopped in Medford, Oregon, on the way down, and I had a two for one coupon and and had one in the on the road, and then the other the next morning for breakfast. So uh, they do travel yeah. well. The, the the density of it, yeah. So is Sonoma work, pleasure, business? Mostly work. My my sister lives here, um, so I came down. Um, we're working on a, a top secret project at the moment. No, it's uh, she's she does a lot of really interesting work within the agricultural world of trying to figure out how you can uh, get products to market in a more socially responsible manner, either through supply chain or through the production side. And, um, so we're working on a, a project together. So I, I drove down from Seattle to come here and work with her. Excellent. Did you fish your way down or did you make it a quick trip? I left. Like, so you said you, you have, you've only fished like four days. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, my, my, it's, that's only been four days in Washington. I went to Baja for 10 days in May. That's really the, I was in Boise for a while for work and fished there for a couple of days. And then I was down here a month ago um, for pleasure and did fish my way back up a little bit. Spent a couple of days out in the Bend area fishing. But no, unfortunately, it was a quick drive down and it's going to be a quick drive back up. But I am going to the Wind Mountains the week after next to fish for a week. So that should be really fun. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fantastic. And, and how, you, you got a pretty big drought going on out there. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. Uh, I mean, I have no sort of historical experience to say that it's been better or worse for my own personal experience. But I mean, the every scientific record is basically showing that the water levels have never been as low um, as they are right now. Um, it's pretty scary stuff. I mean, we have hoot owl closures on some rivers. I think they're probably going to move to full closures on others if, if they haven't already. And, um, Can you explain the, the hoot owl. They've mentioned that on the open fly podcast. Oh yeah. It, it's, um, basically it's, uh, you can fish. Uh, I think it's from, at least in the state of Washington, it's from midnight until, uh, 2 PM. And then you have to stop after 2 PM and can't pick up until after midnight. So it's basically a way that over the course of the day, the water heats up. And so even at, dusk while it might be cooler the water will be significantly warmer because it'll have been catching the rays all day from the sun so it's a way to to keep those fish um a little bit happier um i mean i i the exact numbers are eluding me but it's been absolutely dreadful on the columbia they've had they've had hundreds of thousands of fish come back and i've seen different numbers because it's growing but at least 50% of the sockeye that have been coming back have literally been getting poached. Uh, not poached as in illegally taken, but poached like you would with an egg. I mean, they're in this heated water and they're, they're just kind of burning up on the insides and dying. And so they've had massive fish loss there. And it's a really big problem down here in California on a lot of the rivers like the Sacramento and the Trinity and all that as well. What, what yeah. uh, projects are you working on with your, your business now? Yeah, so get the listeners um, to help out with anything or send letters to representatives. Absolutely. I was actually just working on that before we got on the call. But the two big campaigns that I'm working on at the moment um, for that uh, one, I'm doing a lot of work with the Wild Steelhead Coalition um, based out of Seattle. If you're not familiar, I'm sure you are, but for for anybody out there who's not familiar with them, I sort of view them as kind of the soul of the steelhead movement. 
Um, they're a really great organization that um, is comprised of uh, anglers working to protect and conserve uh, threatened steelhead populations in the state of Washington, or really in the whole Pacific Northwest. But it's um, it's the only it's the oldest steelhead conservation organization, and I think the only one still out there, at least in the mainstream, whose full focus is steelhead conservation. So um, there are a lot of other great groups up there, but they often work on salmon or other trout species, whereas Wild Steelhead Coalition is, is just steelhead 24-7. So, um, and for those people that don't know, if you go to Costco, they'll try to tell you that steelhead is the love child of a salmon and a trout. But we know that is not the truth. Um, it's their own fish. <laughs> yeah, it's the. That's state- what I told at Costco. It's it's, yeah, it's the state fish of Washington, and unfortunately, like not it, people are not particularly aware of that, or don't have much of a connection with it up there as well. I mean, or as much of a connection as we'd like. Uh, I mean, the the population in Puget Sound is three percent of their historic abundance, so it's been listed wow. as a, a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act since. 19 excuse me 2007 but um i mean we're talking you know runs that used to be you know over a hundred thousand or are down to you know three thousand in some cases lower some runs have gone extinct and um it's just it's a really sad state of affairs and so um those organizations are all sort of coming together to try to remove some of the barriers to recovery and and create policies that will, will work to try to uh, bring those population numbers back up. So, so do they contact you? Do you contact them? Um, I sort of a little bit of um, both. I mean, I, I a lot of it's just based on personal relationships. I, I, living out there, I had I knew a number of people. I'd worked with them before. They were one of the the groups that I worked with uh, on my trip uh, upstream journey, and so they were part of the partners of that. And so when I moved there and. Um, I started talking to them and over the course of a couple of months, we sort of pieced together a, a contract. So, um, I started working with them last month and, um, we've mostly been working on, it's actually, it's a really neat thing, but the state of Washington is currently in the process of trying to create, uh, what are, what they're calling wild steelhead gene banks, which are essentially steelhead sanctuaries where they're not going to release hatchery fish there anymore. Um, and, yeah, and so um, they're in the process of creating those, and they've come up with a list of all these different rivers. And so we're trying – they have a lot of – they. it's actually something that they're required to do um, as part of their management plan come, as, a, as a result of steelhead, Puget Sound steelhead being a threatened species. But um, so uh, what we're – they have this whole list of rivers, and we're trying to get them to choose the ones that we think – are going to give steelhead the best chance of recovery, but also that, um, you know, sort of offer the biggest bang for their buck so that we're not choosing a little small tributary of a river when we can choose something like the entire Skagit system, which for, you know, decades has been the crown jewel of uh, steelhead in in Washington and very much a place where a lot of the tactics that we use to catch steelhead now and with the two-handed rod were developed. So, um, those populations are certainly doing better than they were. They're, they're back on the rise, but they're still at less than 10% of their historic abundance. So, Do you know uh, the guys over at Olympic Peninsula Steelhead Tactics, like Jerry French? I don't. They were one of my favorite interviews from ICAST, really? IFTD. Yeah. They, yeah. they got it dialed down. Yeah, he's, they're like some of the original two-handed, you know, fat headline developers. Uh-huh. Some, some pretty crazy feathers and uh, the hooks. They gave me a pack of hooks for intruders that are just, they look like they're made from like samurai swords. They're just so <laughs> sharp. Yeah. You know, it's really sad. A lot of those people, I don't, I don't know them personally. I mean, if they're out, the Olympic is kind of its own scene. But, you know, a lot of the people who are on, on this gadget and who, who did all that work there, I mean, you know, probably the most popular line in all of the steelheading world is just called the Skagit line. Um, and a lot of them developed all those tactics and those skills and those flies and, and those lines out there. And unfortunately, uh, they, most of them have moved, uh, because there's just not nearly as many fish there as there once were. So they've moved to fishier waters and now they're down in Oregon or they're out on the peninsula or they're not fishing for steelhead at all. So they're not at like Lake Erie and the salmon river in New York. No, not not to be disrespectful at all to 
to to the Midwest and Northeast Steelhead crowd, but I don't think that was quite their inclination when they were looking at new new spots to move to. Yeah. I still want to catch myself or at least see a West Coast like wild salmon. I saw some pinks, but I didn't get a good view. Yeah. So, yeah I have to I have to deal with the Salmon River New York and Ohio trips for now. Well you'll have to come out. We'll we'll make it yes. happen. We were supposed to come out to Seattle in like two weeks, but it's just not working with my full schedule and, and trying to sell the condo. Yeah. Yeah. We were well, supposed I'm, to go I'm, to, uh, our, our friends are up in, I'll think of it. They, her, their house overlooks Puget sound. They're North on five, like 20 miles from Seattle. Yeah. It's a, it's a really neat area. I've been really kind of just blown away by the city and the beauty and all that stuff itself. Uh, regardless of, you know, the incredible access you have to some of the most, you know, amazing outdoor spaces anywhere, really. Do you think if uh, Trout were cuddly and, and more photogenic, like Cecil the lion, you'd have a little more uproar, no pun intended, with the conservation of them? It's just not, they're underwater. People don't, unless you're at the river, you have no idea that they're there. Do you think that's just a huge part of like why salmon and, and steelhead just aren't? the forefront of conservation. They're charismatic megafauna for sure in their own right. I mean, and they have been iconic species in the Pacific Northwest for, you know, you know, the hundred plus years that, you know, sort of quote unquote European settlers slash white people slash Americans have been there, but they were there for thousands of years and were, I mean, absolutely beloved and cherished by the native communities and still are. And so, um, I think they have that potential. I mean, I think it's just, it's, um, without getting on my soapbox too much here, you know, I think it's just one of those things where it, it, I mean, you look at, um, anytime I go fishing and I show anybody a picture of a fish that I caught, who's not a fly fisherman. The first question they ask is how to taste. I get that all the time. Uh, you didn't eat it? You threw that back? Exactly. And so I think as long as that that's the general public's reaction, that fish are there for eating, they're not there for somebody else. I mean, nobody goes and takes a photo of a lion in Africa and they're like, hey man, how'd you taste it? How'd you prepare that? <laughs> like, it's just, it's a different relationship. And I think that, you know, we have, I mean, wild steelhead certainly amongst the people who are the devotees to them are just as cherished, um, you know, as a Cecil the lion is, especially when you get into a big one. Um, you know, it's one of the, the challenges is that the only reason, the only way you can really interact with them is, uh, you know, with a rod and reel in your hand. Um, there's actually a burgeoning movement in the Pacific Northwest for, towards river snorkeling, um, which is a really cool thing that I've never done before, but you kind of go and engage with these fish in a different way by going and hanging out in the bottle bottom of a pool and snorkeling and watching these fish just hang out and feed and, do everything. And so that, that's certainly a different way to interact with them. But I mean, I think, um, as long as fish are seen primarily as a resource for us to eat and to nourish ourselves with, then that, that will kind of define how people view the conservation of them. I mean, let's be honest, there are 60 million hunters and anglers in this country. And what percentage of the people who actually even, you know, like to go out and catch trout and steelhead and salmon on their free time are really actively concerned about steelhead conservation and work towards positive solutions to, to keeping them around. Any other people you're working with right now or plans yeah. down, down the line? Yeah. So the other, the other major one that I'm working with is actually kind of a lot in line with what we were just talking about, which is, um, my buddy, Brian Husky, um, four years ago came up with a, a hashtag called keep them wet. Uh, yep. which I'm sure you've seen kicked around on social media and over the last four years, that's, just growing leaps and bounds. Um, and, um, where I'm working with him now and, uh, another friend of ours named, uh, uh, Andy Daniel Chuck, who is a professor of fish biology. Well, it's not actually, I'm sure he has a more sophisticated title than professor, professor of fish biology, but he's basically a world leading expert at understanding the impacts of, um, catching fish and what the, 
the biological and uh, physiological impact that that has on fish. And so um, the three of us are working together um, and we're actually in the next week planning on officially launching the Keep Em Wet co- uh, campaign as a cohesive movement amongst conservation organizations, um, fly fishing companies at the moment, but we hope it expands to gear companies as well as uh, a number of media outlets sort of dedicated to promoting the idea that um, when we catching fish, we have an obligation to sort of, if we're going to be releasing them, to do it with them in the best possible shape. No reason to release a fish that's not going to swim away. So we're working on rolling that out in the next week. And there's the glass box for the keep them wet? Yeah, the Fotarium. Um, yes. Is, is so that part of it or is that just hashtag when people are taking pictures? Yeah, so that's that's a little bit different. I mean, a lot of what we've been working on doing is sort of coalescing um, the keep on what effort. And so it was never when Brian first started, he never thought that this would be uh, come a movement that would sort of represent the evolution of releasing fish because we really sort of see it as the next step to catch and release from a sort of societal progression standpoint. But over the course of the last four years, it has become that because people have really sort of identified with it and it's caught on. And so a lot of what we're working to do is to come together with a sort of consistent group of principles and tips and practices so that we have kind of a a real definition of what keep them wet actually means because to a lot of people it means different things. And, um, you know, we really want to make it into a, a positive movement where it's sort of working on raising awareness and creating a cool culture around um, the keep them wet principles and practices rather than kind of being this, um, you know, pointing fingers, hiding behind a computer screen, just yelling at, at folks for taking a fish out of the water or putting them up on a bank or whatever it might be. So, um, God, Gosh forbid you go on the fly fishing something on Facebook and you're holding a fish by the gill. They'll, t- they'll, they'll tear you a new one. Even if that fish is going to the, the frying table, frying yeah. pan, people are yeah. still, oh, you're the worst ever. Yeah, I mean, and we're totally fine with people bonking fish as long as it's legal and sustainable. Like, that, that doesn't bother us at all. But Now, in, yeah. in, in England, for our UK listeners, bonking a fish means something different. <laughs> um, hitting them on the head. I think Guy Rack talked about that when someone said they were going to bonk a fish on the head. And with a preacher and bonking means more of a fornicative uh, euphemism o- yeah. over the pond. Yeah, not not that. We we will stay neutral on that on the on that issue of bonking. But if people are if people want to take a fish home for dinner, then absolutely all the power to you. But if you're going to be putting it back in a river, um, and it's the the regulations that you need to do that. Um, then we think it's important that you, you try to put it back in. So, I mean, the whole point of catch and release is so that that fish can survive and then be caught again and reproduce and create more fish. And so, uh, there's no point in releasing a fish that's, that's not going to live. So just to make sure that when you are catching one, that you're handling it, that you're minimizing air exposure, you're eliminating contact with dry surfaces, um, and you're sort of trying to reduce the overall handling so you can get that fish back into the water quickly and without too much harm. Especially in the cold, because, you know, on cold days when we're steelhead fishing, you step out and your waders freeze instantly. Like they're crusty. You're, you're, if your guides are freezing, you shouldn't be taking fish out because their lungs, their gills are exposed to that cold air and they're going to freeze instantly too. Like I know if I go running, which I really never do, but if I were to run on a cold day, like it hurts my lungs and they're on the inside of my body. I mean, every fish that gets pulled out in a snowstorm is probably going to die because those gills are going to crystallize and they're going to go back in and swim away and float up downstream. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll, I leave the science to all that stuff to, to Andy, but I mean, it's the, the, what he always you know talks about is that, um, you know, fish have the same sort of, uh, physiology that we have. So uh, the reason, you know, big shrunk fish, the reason that you're able to catch them is because they have the lactic acid buildup um, and they tire out and, you know, you're able to now overpower them and reel them in. And so, um, it's, you know, he always sort of the analogy that he uses is, is like it's like running a marathon for these fish. And if the first thing you do is pull them out of the water, um, you know, it would be the equivalent of you running a race and then immediately being dunked under <laughs> underwater. And not being yeah. able to breathe and try to recover from that. And, you know, 
on it's especially bad on really hot days and on really cold days because of that air temperature difference as you as you mentioned so i mean in the dog days of summer like it is now i mean these fish are already stressed enough that um you know if you're catching them you really need to make sure that you're you're minimizing the air exposure so that they're not being uh incurring that additional stress that's that's unnecessary and one more uh mention your friend's name again brian husky yeah i want to see if he can answer the question about because i've never gotten like a technical answer from like a someone who in the know about what happens when the gills get oh, wet gills sorry. exposed. Yeah. So then Brian, sorry, Brian is the, is the founder of keep them wet. Uh, Andy Daniel Chuck, um, is, is the, uh, is our science advisor. So, okay. um, he, um, so he's a professor at university of, uh, Massachusetts Amherst, but he, he's also a Patagonia ambassador. He does a lot of work with Costa. He's, he's really tight with the loop guys. Um, and is, I don't know if he's as officially something over there, but um, he has pretty much the coolest job that I know. He gets to travel around the world um, doing scientific studies on the impact of um, catching fish on on the actual fish. So you know he'll go to Christmas Island and they'll go and catch GTs and put these trackers on them and then take and take blood samples and figure out what the impact that they're having. Um, his sort of specialty is doing some of these more exotic species too, that are starting to become more popular, um, fish for, um, for sort of Western anglers or European anglers to pursue. Um, and so he was just down in, uh, Argentina, um, doing, uh, some work with golden Dorado down there. Um, I know he's planning on hopefully doing some stuff up, a bunch of other really cool places for some steelhead and salmonid species. So, I mean, he has a pretty neat gig. I'd say I, so. Yeah. And that's how he's getting the sponsorships from the, the companies is he's got to be outfitted with the proper gear. And that's a thanks to him for doing the hard work he's doing for all of us. You know, it's, it's kind of the big challenge that we have with the keep them wet movement is that, um, I mean, one, the impact, as you sort of alluded to earlier for catching a fish, it varies a lot based on, time of the year, water conditions, I mean, all of that stuff. Um, and so if you catch a steelhead and, it's, and you pull it out of the water at 15 degrees, what impact does that have on it as opposed to pulling it out of the water when it's 55 degrees outside? And so there's a sort of a tremendous um, gap in knowledge that exists because especially given the situational differences that exist. Um, and so what Andy and, and a lot of the people that he works with in that field are working to do is to kind of um, bridge that gap so that we have a better understanding of our impact so that we can be more informed anglers and so that we can better understand um, the impact that we're having when we step out to the river. But more importantly, that we can continue to be good stewards for all the fish. I mean, he's a lifelong angler and is an absolute fish bum um, <laughs> in every sense. And so it's it's more about ensuring that we can continue to keep fishing for for generations and generations rather than working on trying to to protect it too much uh, in the sense of closing it down for us to pursue. Yeah, we don't want them to be like the passenger pigeons. No. I would have loved to have seen, like they said a flock of those would take like two days to fly over you, like back in the day. I can't imagine what all this looked like before we just ruined it. Yeah. But like there's pictures, there's not pictures, but like, etchings of what the striped bass used to look like at great falls when it was the dead end for them. Mm -hmm. And they were like 60 inches long and it was like three guys with one net pulling them out. Yeah. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. I mean, there, yeah. there's no more sturgeon in the river. No here. No. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something I, I think about a lot and I try to stop myself from doing it. Cause I feel like it's just a recipe to drive yourself crazy. But, um, you know, like, can you imagine, you know, these rivers up in the Pacific Northwest, they used to be, you know, I, I sort of always joke that, like, fish, steelhead are called a fish of a thousand casts, not because they're hard to catch, they're just hard to find. And it didn't used to be that way. Um, you know, it used to be that you would go out to the river and they would just be piled up and it would be like, you know, catching brim in a bass pond. I mean, it wasn't anything to write home about. I mean, they were still really spectacular fish, but it wasn't uncommon to go out and catch a lot of them. Um, you know, nowadays steelhead are measured, you know, not how many fish you caught per day, but how many you caught per season. Um, wow. you know, rivers the like first, the first time I heard about them was in stand by me when eyeball 
his alibi was going to be, we were going to go down and pull a couple steelhead out of the river and just, it's, I mean, it was probably not written by a fisherman, but it just sounded so nonchalant that they could just go down and catch a couple steelhead yeah. back in the, in the eighties. Yeah. I mean, the Elwha used to have, it was a famous pool and they used to have kings that would come in there that were over a hundred pounds somewhat regularly. Like it wasn't unusual. I mean, it wasn't like you'd go out every day and catch them from my understanding from at least this is all information that I'm getting very secondhand. But, you know, it was not uncommon to go and catch fish there that were over 100 pound kings. And the same is true up in Alaska. Uh, you know, catching kings that were 70, 80 pounds wasn't that unusual. And now I mean, they've gotten just so much smaller, just like the stripers on the East Coast. I mean, king is now something really notable. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We're going to Jersey this weekend, and uh, my cousin's house, we're going to meet up with some friends from Project Healing Waters. I was like, hey, should I bring my rods? And they're like, yeah, there's, the fish are all gone where we're going. Because there's they're, the men hate it. There's, there's nothing for them to eat. They don't even, they're not there anymore. Uh, yeah. And, you know, where I, where I live now, there you know, we're elk and wolves here. And apparently, this is an old rumor I heard growing up, that Georgetown Pike, 193 in Northern Virginia, used to be a bison migra- migration route along the Potomac. So I, I always think that's crazy. Yeah. And then, like, we were talking about lions. They used to be in the U.K., I think the Romans killed them all. Yeah, there were like lions throughout all of all of Europe. I never heard that. Like they weren't just an African animal. Huh. Yeah, that was one of the things. That, and I, I think we had started talking about this. I mean, when I – about Ireland, that was really neat. Um, is that like Ireland is not a wild place by any stretch because it's the same thing, right? They, they've managed to kill off pretty much anything that they had that was big or scary. Uh, and so, you know, your your biggest threat is, is drinking at a pub and – you know, all the things that go along with that. You don't have to worry. You know, having just spent all this time up in Alaska and stuff where you're walking around with bear spray and constantly worried about running into a moose or a bear, like that's just, you never have to worry about any of that in Ireland. But that said, they have this incredible wild fishery uh, that's just mind blowing. Everything they have there is, um, they have a couple of, of stuff like uh, where they put rainbow trout into a lake or something. But 99% of their fishing there is all native wild fish. And it's super neat because you're like fishing in this countryside that's, you know, it's been farmed for a thousand years, but you're fishing to wild salmon or wild brown trout, uh, native wild brown trout. Whereas like you can go down to Patagonia and you're in this really remote, incredible wilderness, but you're actually not fishing for sort of native wild fish. It's much more of a manufactured wilderness. And so it's right. it's sort of an interesting dynamic, but something that I really love the entire time in Ireland is I don't think I cast to one not native wild fish the entire year that I was there. Yeah. That, that you mentioned that you were fishing for brown trout in a creek in Dublin and there was like just beer cans and plastic bags. Yeah. And that, that they're just, they're there. Yeah. I mean, that's right in the heart of Dublin and that river still has, unfortunately I missed the timing for it, but that river has sea trout and salmon that come up in it. But like, it's just nuts. There was fishing this one river, uh, about an hour North of Dublin. It's just crazy. I mean, the, the country is basically the size of Maine. It's got the population of Seattle. It's like, I mean, pretty much the Seattle metro area. It's four and a half million people, which is what even smaller than what DC metro is now, right? DC metro is like five and a half or so. It's just crazy here. Too many people. Yeah. So it's anyway, it's a country that's the size of Maine. It has a population less than DC essentially, or DC metro area. Um, and it probably has a thousand trout rivers on it, in it. Wow. Plus, plus countless lakes, plus a thousand miles of coastline that you can go fish for sea bass and other stuff there. And monster pike and monster brown trout in these lakes. I mean, I fished this one river and I didn't land any of them, so it wasn't a hundred percent sure. But I, I hooked one fish that came out of the water and looked. This is in one. 50 yard stretch that looked like just a really big thick brown trout and then i hooked another fish that was definitely a pike 
And then I got another grab from a fish that really felt like an Atlantic salmon in one hundred yard run on this river. My goodness. And then you can go get like a, a perfectly good Guinness and some stew and Yeah. Do, do you miss do you miss being there? Are you gonna go back? Yeah, I really want I really want to. Unfortunately I was not in, in the cards for this year. I've got other trips on the table, but I, I really want to do a media project there of sorts. I tried to pull it together when I was there last year for this upcoming summer and I just I couldn't quite get the storyline right or the medium right. I need to figure it out, though. I mean, it's there's something about it, and it's the only place I've ever lived abroad, and so it, I might just be biased about it. But there's just something, and I've, I've spent a lot of time traveling, and I've been really fortunate to see a lot of corners of this world. But there's something just really like authentic and charming about Ireland, and I have no Irish ancestry or any ties there. I'd never been there prior to, to going there last year, but it's just. Um, there's this sort of like visceral Irishness that pervades everything you do there. And it's something that I felt like was this really kind of ingrained in, in the fishing world there, which was really neat. I mean, you go out and you're like walking through this classic Irish countryside with sheep and cows everywhere and the rolling green hills that are greener than you could imagine them being in a little bit of a rainstorm and you're sipping tea by the river and you go out, you know, with some Irish buddy or guide who's just this hilarious Irish crack up guy, you know, and you're going there and you're just catching these beautiful wild brown trout, pulling little tugs of Jameson out of your flask. And then at the end, and you do that all day and you can go to, I mean, there's rivers everywhere. So you can go fish three or four rivers in a day like that and then not see another person. And then you pop into some little small town and you have, you know, fish and chips or Guinness pie or whatever and drink a couple of Guinness and just like in this just really warm pub that's been around for you know a couple hundred years and you know talk fishing and shoot the shit with the locals if you can understand what they're saying and you know like there's just something about it like I was just down in Baja and Baja is super cool and we were staying you know a little bit more remote like not in a big touristy area and it just it just didn't quite have the same the same feel to it. I don't know. It was, it's just different. I'd rather have a nice Guinness over a Pacifico. Yeah. I prefer for the Guinness. But All right. Now, speaking of food, you've been to Elysian in Seattle? I have. Did you get the uh, Jasmine IPA? I don't remember what I drank there. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's a good sign. Um, what's the deal with them putting cream cheese on their hot dogs up there? I don't know. I'm lactose intolerant, so I haven't, ah. the real thing that's really hilarious too about Seattle from a food culture standpoint. And I didn't know this until I moved up there. They've got like, have you, have you spent any time there before? Yeah. Just a coffee shop in every corner. You think they would just have like coffee pipes under the sidewalk and like, just like, like water fountains converted to coffee. <laughs> I mean, I've been there and then I watched the movie singles in high school. That's about all I know. Well, they have all these like weird roadside coffee shops um, that are just these like little barns or sheds with like women being topless or in like bikinis or lingerie, like serving you coffee. It's a weird thing I've never heard of or seen anywhere. And I drove past one the first time and I was like, what the heck? (laughs) What's going on? I remember when I must have been 12. And there was a thing in Florida where there were women selling hot dogs uh, in like thong bikinis. Uh, in like roadside stands, I remember driving past one. I was like, and puberty started. <laughs> I was like, dad, can we, he's like, no, you're not going there. Probably because they weren't kosher hot dogs. Yeah. Maybe if it was like a Hebrew national, we would have gone. But, uh, yeah, because they have restaurants as the term is called like the tilted kilt. But I, I don't know about these topless, uh, you can burn yourself like with the, the, the steam. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't I haven't stopped any of them yet to get a closer look. It was just uh, sort of a bizarre part of the Seattle food culture that I was unaware of. So yeah, I totally missed that when I was there. Hey, well, anything else we should uh, catch up on with before uh, almost the hour point? So I don't want to keep you too long in yeah. Sonoma. You, you're in California. You got fun stuff to do uh, unfortunately when i get off the phone with you i'm about to get back to work so um this is my one nice break for the day so i'm i'm happy to continue talking uh if procrastination is way more fun um yeah. let's see well oh yeah so well another thing 
one of one of the things that I've been working on a lot is I'm now sort of the new. Uh, do you know Brian Bennett and Moldy Chum? I, I've never met Brian in person, but uh, you know, follow the blog. It's getting a little too much. Vid- I don't have time to watch all these fly fishing videos. Uh-huh. Every day it's like fly, and I'm like, dude, I don't have time to watch fly fishing videos. Uh, but yeah, you know, he he kind of got the whole like throwing the steelhead done with it at Pike Place. Yeah, um, yeah, he's on. He's a real big steelhead advocate. He's on the he's on the board yeah. for the Wild Steelhead Coalition. But um, I'm actually now working with him on the Chum, and we've got a big relaunch with a whole new site coming out in the next couple of weeks. Oh, so fewer videos, more conservation. He needs to start up the podcast too. The I mean, he and Teach. Yeah. Yeah, they used to do the the fish stick, which yeah. is great. I was on that years ago. Yeah, I remember I listened to it. It was all about the the northern snakehead, right? Yeah, and which I just released a big podcast the other day. By the way, I think of you every time I listen to Sirius Radio in my car. I don't know if you ever listen to the comedy station, but uh like they always play the John Stewart clip where he's talking about northern snakeheads. Do you know about that? And I every time I hear it, I oh. think of you and your snakehead. I can't have to listen to that. Tonight's his last night. I know. For the this will be like released next week. Tonight's also the the Donald Trump show. So we're gonna we don't have a lot of TV stations, so we're gonna have to like stream the what do you call it? A debate tonight. Yeah, I will not be be partaking in that. That's gonna be hilarious. Brennan and I are working on some stuff. It's not quite a podcast the way it used to be, but it's gonna be uh trying to use some some audio media stuff to to tell stories in a slightly different way so it's it's still very much in the experimental phase but that'll be part of it moving forward but yeah i mean we're hoping to be able to have more conservation stuff on there and create a little bit more of our own kind of original content but we've got a lot of new cool features that we're rolling out as part of the relaunch um including um some some other stuff that you'll see here in the next week or two so might have to do a a sit down skype with the two of you guys oh i just had a, a midge just hatched out of my tank sweet yeah i got two caddisflies in my office i had to take outside earlier but yeah a little white midge just popped out of the tank nice my crane fly's gone two loops around the the tank while we've been talking also his or her name is crazy uh fraser crane fly <laughs> you're really working here pretty aggressively on getting your patterns nailed down you've got a whole bug collection in your in your, in your uh, cave down there i've completely rethought the scuds are i tried filming them they are way too fast um they look like if you've ever watched big bang theory when that the the skinny guy had coffee for the first time and put on his flash like the flash comic book guy outfit and was running around Mm -hmm. that's what these scuds do and then caddis flies they basically look like they're humping rocks all day i guess it's the way they're breathing but they undulate the entire time. Huh. And you think that, you know, most most flies are just like this static, tied to a hook, dead drifted thing. But, I mean, these things are, it looks like they're going to town on these pebbles. Or they're on the glass just like humping all day long. Was it, was it Orbis Speaking that of- came out with a, that sort of like more articulated hook that you can use for, for nymphs? I feel like I saw something about that at one point. Like, Well, there's always like the Senyo wiggle right. nymph. But I felt like uh, was that's all mostly more, like fish skull stuff. Right. I felt like there was something that I saw that Orvis was advertising for that, but I might be conflating some some things here. I, I need to start tying up some articulated uh, shad smolt patterns for the when they start getting ready to go to the, the ocean in about a month and a half for the stripers. They work well at Gravelly Point on the swing. Yeah. I, I have to say I really miss the shad run a lot more <laughs> this year than I, than I thought I would. Yeah. You, it was a wacky one. We had a major flood right in the heart of it, and it just blew it out for two weeks. So I was at home like, great, you know, tying shad flies but not not fishing. Yeah. my despite, you know, As you know, you were the, the person who taught me how to tie flies, and unfortunately I've been really bad at it lately. I haven't tied a fly, I think, in almost a year, if not longer. Wow. You guys start your own beer tie out there. I know I was I was actually talking about it because uh, Dave just got it's a he so his his business has been around Emberwater Angler since '98 but they just opened a store last summer it's been uh, almost a year exactly and he just got tying and mater- tying materials in so I was joking with him because we they have a bunch of really cool events in, in the shop like they've got a writers on the fly um, where they uh, do you ever drink Manny's Pale Ale I've never heard of this Pale Ale oh it's a really good Pale Ale. <laughs> Manny, Tom- like the kid from uh, Modern Family, like that that way, Manny. Yep, 
Yeah, so okay. it's a it's a really good pale ale by Georgetown Brewery, and so they'll bring in a, a keg, and we'll have really cool events, uh, you know, informational stuff, educational stuff, and then these regular writer on the fly events where we've got a bunch of different teams, uh, some stuff they've written, which is really fun. But where I've been joking with him that we need to get, a, or I've been telling him we needed to get tie beer tie and just bring a bunch of people into yeah. the shop and do it. So it's a great way just to have like public speakers and local guides come out and talk. I still, we still need to have someone just do not tying. Someone actually brought it up on the forum, but I've been seeing for years, like have Trent or Dalton just sit down and, and do like clinch knots and just whatever for people to, to learn. Yeah. That's really a good knots. My knots are still terrible and I, I have like three of them that I tie and I hope that I can get me away with doing everything else that I need to do with them. So I'm a big fan of the non-slip mono loop on the gutless frogs. And then the gutless frog, man, you don't need it out there. I don't think they're eating frogs, but yeah, that's my go-to top water, like bass fly. Now it's, it's so easy to make. There's a tutorial I made somewhere. I'll, now that I've got like a tying room and a DSLR that does video, like I'm going to shoot like better. Usually I just like hold up the, my iPhone and film like low budget tutorials, but I'm going to actually be able to like get something going now. Nice. All right, so so uh, where can we find your company now, your consulting firm? Yeah, so uh, it's Last Frontier Strategies. So you can find it at www.lastfrontierstrategies.com. The Keep Them Wet stuff is going to be uh, websites launching next week, if all goes well. And so that's going to be www.keepemwet.org, all one word. New Chum should be coming out here in the next few weeks, and that's going to be a uh, new site, but same URL for that. And uh, the other thing I forgot to mention is I did an article um, in the Flyfish Journal about the Chewitna. So if you have access to the Flyfish Journal or want to grab one, it's a really fantastic magazine in general. And there's a big 3,000 or so word piece in there in the most recent issue on Chewitna. So a good way to learn more in that as well. Fantastic. I think that's it, Mike. And, and if this doesn't record properly, I'm just going to like break something in here yeah um also um you can we can happily do it again i enjoy talking to you rob so we can just do it next road week. trip yeah or you should definitely come out to seattle i it's a bummer um unfortunately more of the political stuff that i'm doing is sort of died down in the dc realm at the moment and so i don't have anything to schedule to come back there which is kind of sad because I, I love coming back and seeing the old stomping grounds and seeing everybody but uh definitely figure out a time the food's gotten so much better in the last couple of years. Yeah. They're doing some, some serious, serious food now in the city. It's getting good. Glad to be in Seattle. Really love it there. I've, I've got this just, I, I lucked in to this sort of killer apartment situation, this great deal. And so I've got this really uh, nice place with a beautiful rooftop, rooftop deck with Wi-Fi overlooking Puget Sound, the Olympics, and the Rainier. Wow. Rainier. So I don't. My goodness. I wouldn't quite trade that for going back to dc but i do miss it and i wish i had the opportunity to spend more time there so and you got a chipotle in the basement got a chipotle on the ground floor got i got everything i need it was it's it's in west seattle which to some degree is like a little bit of like the arlington of seattle even though it's still technically part of seattle i mean people it's across a bridge people look at it and being like oh it's all the way out there but i'm like 10 minutes downtown yeah exactly i'm that's Five. Starfish for Salmon, right off the towers of the pump station for the pool. Yep. Climb up those. Yeah, so I've got uh, I've got my advanced elements yak that hopefully I'll be taking out a couple of nights when I get back and trying to go out there and catch some pinks and turn them into jerky for my upcoming backpacking trip. So if all goes well. Fantastic. Yep. All right, man. Well, thanks. We'll catch up again. Absolutely. Hopefully we'll do it over uh, Jasmine IPA. Yeah, for sure. All right, dude. Thank you so much. My and, pleasure. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to go eat that dinner that's cold now. All right. Sorry to have kept you from that. No worries, man. Have fun up on the shore. Will do. All right. See you, bud. Bye, man. Take care. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowlight.com.
life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. Six, eight Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.